This is a recording made in the chapter of the open book and is number four of the series dealing with the two-foldedness of prophetic truth. This evening we are considering the two anointings that dominate the whole book. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together. Those of you who are listening, if you care to join us, will you read together with us Second Epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, chapters 1 and 2. We are looking at this series at one peculiar feature or phenomenon in connection with the unfolding of prophetic truth. That there are two lines running parallel. There's Christ, there's Antichrist. There's light and children of light and darkness. There's good and evil. And we were noticing at the beginning that in Genesis 3.15 there's most evidently recognised two seeds in the earth. For God said to the woman and to the serpent, I will put enmity between thy seed and her seed. And the same story is picked up by our Saviour in the kingdom teaching where he said that God sowed his good seed and the devil sowed his seed. And they both grow together unto the harvest and the one goes to the barn and the other is burned. We then looked at the fact that these represent two great systems and these systems are focused in cities. Now a city may be a conglomeration of buildings but in the scriptures very often a city is a representative of some system and occupies a sort of strategic point. You look on the map, you see on the one side is Jerusalem, and just across the way is Babylon. Or just across the way, I say, but relative distances. They are right on that spot there. And these two systems run their course right through the Bible, and you get to the last chapters of the book of the Revelation, and Babylon is still there, but at last to be destroyed. And the Alleluia's break out, and the heavenly Jerusalem is seen coming down from heaven to be God's administrative centre on the earth. That doesn't mean, say, that the physical, literal, geographical Jerusalem hasn't got a place for that as yet to be restored and be a centre of blessing to the very families of the earth. We are told that in that day the nations shall send up their representatives to keep the Feast of Tabernacles at Jerusalem, and if they do not, they're going to be punished either with plague or withholding of rain. So, on the earth as well as in the heavenly Jerusalem, there is to be that radiation of light and truth and power. Well, now there are two mysteries. We meant, well, I meant one of them is mentioned in 2 Thessalonians, the mystery of iniquity. And in the epistle to the, written to Timothy, there's the mystery of godliness. Those two mysteries run together and, as it were, cross one another at many times. And those two mysteries are headed up by two who are called the Lord's anointed, anointed ones. And it's that subject we're going to consider this evening. Now I've just got a note here to jog my memory a one little phrase that I've mentioned before, but I think it's got a great deal of wisdom in it. In Dickens' novel where Micawber philosophizes, now everybody knows about 19 shillings and ninepence, and you know, and nine, uh, nine or 20 shillings and sixpence business. But there was another one that's never quoted so much. One of the characters in this story of Dickens says, 
Now let's begin at the beginning. And because this is nonsense, let's begin at the end. And you know there's a wonderful lot of truth in that. We're beginning at the end. Because you see, things don't show themselves at the beginning. You may be mistaken when you look at this and think, oh, that's a fine idea. But if you could only see the end to which it's pressing. So the end is in this two Thessalonians. This is where it all comes out into the open. And the next thing we realise is that however wicked and monstrous this system is, it can't get away from the question of worship. Instead of just running a sort of campaign over the earth for commercial purposes and political things, they're not, they're not mentioned so much. It's the fact that this one sits in the temple of God usurping the position of God and claiming universal worship. All keep that in mind, friends. Satan has no need to turn people into blackguards and murderers and robbers. That's incidental, as soon as they start on his program. But what he's out for is to usurp the place of Christ. And if he could bring a millennium on the earth, with peace and safety without the Son of God, it would suit his ticket altogether. He didn't hesitate to put the matter before Christ, you remember, in the temptation. You've come to be the king. Here's the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. One act of worship and they're yours. Now that seems almost impossible for us to think it should be so. But it's written. So we're going to look this evening at this question of the two anointed ones. And I think we will take the opportunity to get some little idea what it means to be anointed anyhow. We won't spend all our time on the fact that there's one who is a wicked one who is called the anointed. We'll get some idea of what the true anointed one means and so uh, make it well worthwhile. I do remember, and I remind myself of this sometimes, that at one occasion a lecturer came to a college of young fellows and he was going to lecture on the Sunday morning on the evils of Gnosticism and in the Sunday afternoon he was going to give the testimony of the Gospel and Epistles of John to counteract it. So all the young fellows came to the meeting on Sunday morning because it was pouring with rain and they heard all the evils of the Gnosticism and it turned out a fine afternoon and they never heard about the remedy. So in both, in our meetings, but our both friends, we won't, we won't spend all our time looking at the satanic side. That's bad enough. We'll get both sides. Well now, first of all, this word um, anointed. It comes through, ultimately, from the word which is, in our language still, unction. And O-I-N-T is the basic word for the word ointment. And you know as well as I do that physically, it means to pour oil. And particularly in the Bible, a very specially compounded oil that mustn't be put upon the flesh of any person except the priest or the king or the prophet without suffering, perhaps even death. I'm very glad to notice one thing. That in the New Testament, our Saviour is said to be anointed with the oil of gladness. You see, we think of this as such a sacred thing, and it is. We think of the priest and all his functions. We think of the king and all his authority. We think of the prophet with all the wisdom that he has to have and make known the truth. And this is the oil of gladness. Whatever you do, friends, don't get so absorbed by one side of it as to forget that the oil that anointed our Saviour and set him apart as prophet and priest and king was the oil of gladness. 
So that's taking the Corbus advice a little bit. We're looking at the end instead of all the steps that lead to it. Now in the original, the word comes from a Hebrew word which means to anoint and gives us the word Messiah. Masach is the word and it gives us the word Messiah. And I want you to turn just to make sure that you know the passage where that particular word comes. But we shall have to go back to Psalm 2 later. So if you feel a bit indolent and don't want to turn to it for the time you find it and I read it, well then we shall be away again. But there's one passage where that particular word comes. Psalm 2. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together. What against? Who against? Not systems, not cities, not nations, not countries. Against the Lord and against his anointed. You see, it's coming right out on the surface. All the attacks, wherever they are, are ultimately aimed at him. The Lord's anointed. We're coming back to that again because there's an entirely different word translated anointed that comes in Psalm 2. In the New Testament, it's not the word Mashiach or Masach. You see, the word Messiah, uh, pronounced by Hebrew, would give most of us laryngitis. They're very strong gutturals. Mashiach. I, I don't suppose I've got it properly now. But in the, New, in the New Testament, it's a bit easier. C-H-R-I-O, Creo. That has to do with anointing. And that gives us the word Christ. So the word Christ in the New Testament is the Messiah of the Old Testament. Two passages. Acts 10, 38. Acts 10, 38. Peter is speaking. And he's rehearsing in the presence of Cornelius what the Lord did in the land. Here, he says, in 10, 38. Uh, oh, where am I? First, yes, yes. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power. The anointing was not with oil, but with what the oil represented. The oil was only a picture. The oil was, a, was, a, was a, an indication that he was anointed with the Holy Ghost. And to be anointed with the Holy Ghost or the Holy Spirit was to be anointed with supernatural power who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed of the devil, for God was with him. There is the emphasis that he anointed Jesus of Nazareth. And then, in John, the first chapter, you may remember there's an explanatory note. And that's important in looking at the Gospel according to John as a whole. John, the first chapter. It says, um, verse 41, He first findeth his own brother, Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah. Now you see this ends with S, Messiah. Well, that's only because Greek names nearly always end, like we were reading tonight, Timotheus. Well, we call him Timothy. So this is just the word Messiah, again from the Old Testament. We have found him, the Messiah, which is being interpreted, the Christ. Now you see, that's put in the first chapter 
it comes again in chapter 4, the, the woman of Samaria said, the Messiah. And so when John sums it up in the 20th chapter, these things have been written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're supposed to say, the Messiah. These things have been written that you may believe that this one is the Old Testament Messiah that God promised should come, as the woman said in the fourth chapter, be the Saviour of the world. The Anointed One, with that marvellous power setting him apart for that particular purpose. Now, the next thing is that there are three distinctive offices, particularly apart from the tabernacle and its utensils, that were anointed. In the book of Exodus, I won't turn you to the passage to read, I'll just tell you the text, Exodus 29, 7, and any about more passages, we have the priest, Aaron, anointed. And then we have, you remember, the anointing of a king. Now, in this case, we have a beginning of a suggestion of the two anointings, of the two kings, because in the book of Samuel, we have the people clamoring that to be like the nations, setting aside God, and God saying to Samuel, it's all right, Samuel, they haven't forsaken you, they've forsaken me. And Saul, a very promising man of the tribe of Benjamin, was anointed king. And the moment he was anointed, they said, is Saul among the prophets? He had a spirit. He says he became another man. Now, I don't want to be fantastic, but that Saul was out looking after asses. And the next one that was anointed was out looking after sheep. Now, I don't know. All I know is written. Why it should tell us in the Bible, all those centuries ago, that this man who was selected to be king, Saul, was looking after asses, well, I don't know. Isn't that modest of me? But then I read in the next few chapters, Samuel was told to go down and anoint somebody else because he said, I've rejected Saul. He's turned away. He's been manifesting another spirit altogether. And he went down to Bethlehem. And he called on a farmer there named Jesse. Jesse was a bit alarmed. He said, I wonder why he's come. He says, all right, I've come. Now, let me see your son. And there they stood, a row of them. And he said, no. I have no indication that the Lord's anointed is here. This is all you've got. Ooh, he said, there's young David looking after the sheep. He says, we'll wait for him. And as David came in, this is the Lord's anointed. And he was anointed to be king while Saul was still sitting on the throne. The two kings now. Oh, and then starts the persecution. First of all, taking him into his family, and then take, uh, attempting many times to take his life, hunting him in the wilderness, finally driving him to the cave of Adullam, where those who were very much of his own character had to assemble. Oh, what a picture of the, of the persecution side, the man of sorrow's side, before he sat upon the throne. But then ultimately, you get the people gathering together, and first of all, David is anointed king in Hebron over his own peculiar people, not but the tribe. And then after a few years, he was anointed king over all Israel and reigned 40 years. 
And then you get, in the book of Kings, the anointing of a prophet, Elijah and Elisha. They are brought together. So you get 1 Samuel 15, 1 to give you the anointing of a king, and 1 Kings 19, 16 to give you the anointing of a prophet. And then in the book of Exodus, chapter 40 onwards, you find the tabernacle and its furniture were all anointed. So there's this thought that it means a very sacred setting apart for some particular surface. Well now, you don't need me to remind you that when you read Jesus Christ, you've got a name, that was the name given to him at his birth, Jesus, but the Christ, as it nearly always is, is a title. It's not a name. He is Jesus, the Christ. And then, if you will take the revised text, you'll discover that no writer in the New Testament, other than the Apostle Paul, uses the title the other way round. There's no other writer says, the Christ, Jesus. Putting the title first. As much as to say, that one, that one who was made a little lower than the angels, that one who stooped to become a man and then to the death of the cross, whose name is Jesus, that one is the Christ. And the Christ carries with it the one set apart, not only to be the saviour from sin, but to rule and reign in righteousness until at last he brings this perfected kingdom to lay them at the feet of the Father that God may be all in all. Micarba was right. He said, let's begin at the end. That's the end. But all what a conflict because at the ascension we are told that Christ has sat down at the right hand from henceforth expecting until his foes remain his footstool. And in 1 Corinthians 15, when it says, Then cometh the end, for he must reign until he hath put down all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. So you see, it's no fairy tale. It's no fancy thing. It was a dedication to a tremendous work that cost our Saviour his life's blood, but blessed be God, he couldn't be held by death. He was the overcomer, the victor, and his resurrection ascension and present session at the right hand is an expectation that will not be disappointed and our expectations are his. Well now, seeing that that is so, we will look again, I think, at many of the passages where we see the word Christ emphasised and say, yes, that's the anointed one. Well then, of course, we could go further afield and we could say that the anointing also is mentioned concerning God's own people. Shall we just take that in as well as a part of our lesson? The first epistle of John. The first epistle of John. He's dealing with Antichrist and the lie in this first epistle. Verse 18. Little children, it is the last time. And as ye have heard that Antichrist shall come, even now are there many Antichrists whereby we know that it is the last time. So, many Antichrists. Verse 20, But ye have an unction from the Holy One. That's the anointing. And ye know all things. Now that is a, a definite gift. That anointing is not given to us today. Well, I'll speak for myself. I have no anointing 
so that I could stand up and here and tell you I know all things. But this anointing was a supernatural gift, and they had supernatural gifts. When you read, oh, we'll, go, we'll look at this and we'll go back to 1 Corinthians 12 in a moment. We have this anointing, he says, further down in this same chapter, verse 27. Verse 26 says, These things have I written unto you concerning them that seduce you. Deception. He says, You've been given a protection, but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. But as the same anointing teacheth you all of all things, and is truth, and is no lie, even as it hath taught you, ye shall abide in him. Well, that anointing was a supernatural gift of knowledge. They had no need that anyone teach them. So the very fact that you're here this evening, I hope, means to say that you say, well, I'm not upset when you tell me that I haven't got the anointing, because if you had, we ought to change places. I ought to come down there, you come up here. Now, 1 Corinthians 12 contains a statement that has caused a certain amount of feeling among God's people. 1 Corinthians 12, about this question of the word Christ, meaning the anointed one. First of all, what is 1 Corinthians 12 about? Well, people will tell you that it's proving that the church is the body of Christ and we're all members. Well, if this proves that the body of Christ is in, uh, is in operation here, in the body of Christ, are there uncomely parts? Say so here. No, no. He's told us what 1 Corinthians 12 is about in the first verse. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I would not have you ignorant. So he's going to tell you about spiritual gifts. He's prefaced the whole chapter with that statement. And then he goes on to say there are these various um, gifts, diversities of gifts, the same spirit. It includes healing, it includes a gift of knowledge, a gift of wisdom, all supernatural. And then we get the bit that's caused a certain amount of feeling. Verse 12, for as the body is one, and of many members, and all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. Now the average reader immediately thinks that refers to our Saviour. And if you say, well it doesn't, all they think you're robbing him. But supposing we don't translate it Christ, and we translate it the anointed one. For as the body is one, and of many members, and all the members of that body are being one, are one body, so also is the anointed. You all by this gift of the Spirit are united into one company, having this gift, like many members of one body. So you see, watch out for the word anointed sometimes. Well now I want to go to the other word that is translated anointed, or could be translated anointed, and we go back to Psalm 2, and this time... I think you better turn to it because this is not so well known. Psalm 2. You remember we've started reading it. Why do the heathen rage and the people imagine a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Now then, the Lord speaks. Verse 6. Yet have I set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And if you look at the margin you'll see the word set is, is put as an alternative anointed. Well, you say, how can two different words mean anointed? Well, suffer this, this is not playful, this is in earnest. It so happens 
that in our language we can do what the scripture often does. Take two words that sound alike to teach the lesson. Look, is an anointed person simply someone upon whose head oil has been placed? Oh, you say, no. It must mean that the oil has done what? The anointed person is an appointed person. And that's the translation of that word set. There's my anointed, and I have set him or appointed him to be king. So that every anointed person is an appointed person to some office, even in the days of Corinth. An anointed person then was appointed to raise the dead or give prophetic truth or speak with tongues. It never meant merely to put something on your head. The something on your head was a mere symbol saying the anointed person is an appointed person. Well, you say, so what? Well, we go to the book of Proverbs now and the 8th chapter. The 8th chapter. There's a feeling out in the book of Proverbs for some line of teaching and as my uh, Bible has automatically opened at chapter 30, I'll read what it says in the first few verses. The words of Agar, the son of Jacka, even prophecy. And then he says, verse 4, Who hath ascended up into heaven, or descended? Oh, you say, I know who that is in the New Testament, yes. Who hath gathered the wind in his fists? Who hath bound the waters in a garment? Who hath established all the ends of the earth? What is his name? And what is his son's name? If thou canst tell. That's all he says. See, right in the early days, this act of creation is connected with someone who had a son with him all the time. Now we'll come to the 8th chapter of Proverbs. And here we read these words. Verse 22. The Lord possessed me in the beginning of his way before his works of old. This is right back in the beginning. I was set up from everlasting. That's the word anointed. And you remember Peter says that our Saviour Christ was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world as a lamb without blemish and without spot. Some of these things were hidden by God and form a part of a mystery and not known until Satan had committed himself. And then he found God had known already and prepared, as he does all the way down. But here we are taken right to the beginning. And here was this one who was appointed from, from the beginning. Oh, and then he goes on with all the wonder of creation. It says, verse 30, Then was I by him, as one brought up with him, and I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. So, right to the beginning, the earth to be a habitation, to be inhabited by the sons of men, was in the mind and the purpose of this one who was with him from everlasting. Now, I feel I must turn to Micah the prophet, because not only from the beginning of creation. But here we have another statement linking this with um, Bethlehem. Micah, 
chapter 5. Verse 2. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, now when the uh, Herod asked the wise men, the scribes, where Christ should be born, they didn't say Bethlehem Ephrathah, for very good reason. Because there are more than one place in Palestine called Bethlehem. And in this particular spot, he says it's Bethlehem Ephrathah, not the Bethlehem over there. But if you're actually on the spot in the day, you don't have to say Bethlehem Ephrathah, you simply say Bethlehem, and there it is, you see. So that's all right. But thou Bethlehem Ephrathah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, in the New Testament, the princes of Judah, because just as we have a centurion who looked after a hundred, so a prince looked after a thousand. And if you will look at some of the statements in the Old Testament about the hundreds of thousands that die over a certain battle, well, it's not thousands at all, it's some of the princes that fell. There's one particular case I try to work out, but my mathematics failed me. You'll read in one part of the Bible that a wall fell on so many thousand of them and killed a lot of them. Well, it tells you the length of the wall, and if these people had packed themselves as close as it, you would be possible. Hoping they'd all be killed, they couldn't all get there. Or you get so many thousands stricken dead because they looked into the ark that was in a field. Thousands of them in a field. And thousands of them crossing the River Jordan couldn't say, Shibboleth. No, no, it's the princes, the leaders of them and a few followers that you've got to remember half the time. And here you'll get one of the hints that the word prince, LF, and the word thousand is the same word. Well, there it is, I'll leave that to speak for itself. But thou, Bethlehem Ephrata, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, he doesn't stop there, whose goings forth had been from old, from everlasting. Now they didn't say that when they spoke to Herod, they just left it at that. But this says, always is at Bethlehem, but that's not where he started. His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Then he begins at Bethlehem. Then he's seated at the right hand. Then he goes right to the end. This is the Lord's anointed, set apart for that very gracious and wonderful work. Well now I think it's time that we did give a word or two with regard to the other side of the story. I've hinted at it in the sense that Saul and David start as practically almost together, both of them anointed, both kings at the same time, but one reigning, the other persecuted, the other following when Saul died a suicide's death because he turned to witches and familiar spirits and departed from the living God. I won't turn to all the passages but remind you that in Matthew 24 our Saviour reminds his hearers there should be false Christs, there's false prophets and they're headed up in the book of the Revelation the man of sin, the son of perdition, that awful monster that's yet to rule, has his prophet, the false prophet, and both of them eventually are cast into that dreadful lake of fire. It seems very strange that very nice, gentle people, they don't distinguish between those two awful monsters that are cast into the lake of fire with some little kid that's born in a back alley because he's never been to Sunday school, he's going there as well. I hope you don't believe that. There's very, very few will be cast into that lake of fire 
and those are these monstrous people that we can hardly put into any category. Anyhow, we go now to the prophet Ezekiel for a reference to someone else who was anointed. And here we are asking for trouble in a sense because of all the prophets that give you poses and difficulties, I think we should have to give the palm to Ezekiel. I do remember, and I've told you before, I know, that it's written on my mind very plainly, that after speaking for all I was worth in a meeting, and friends, if it seems easy to you, it takes a certain amount, you know, at the end. And just when I was staggering away as best I could from the meeting, somebody buttoned on me and says, oh, oh, before you go, can you give me just in one word the key to the prophet Ezekiel? And before I collapsed, I just said, cherubim, like that thing. <laughs> well, it begins with descriptions of cherubim. Now, we've got descriptions of them, but what they are and all to do with them is beyond us. They're mighty, symbolic creatures that uphold the throne of God. They come right through the scriptures. They were on the ark. They're right through into the book of the Revelation, and there they're called four beasts, but there ought to be four living creatures, the same as Ezekiel calls them. A lion, an ox, a man, and an eagle. They symbolize the dominion given to Adam, the lion, the ox, the eagle, and the man. And there at the Garden of Eden, he lost it. And there in the book of the Revelation, where paradise is restored, it's all come back. But it's more than that. More than that. And there's a suggestion here, only a suggestion that we can look at. Listen to the words that are said and say, well, I don't know more than is written, but we will at least let it speak to us. Ezekiel 28. Now, there are two beings. In verse 2, son of man, say unto the prince of Tyre. And then, in verse 12, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre. Well, I suppose God means what he says. One is called the prince of Tyre, and the next one is called the king of Tyre. So should we first of all look at the Prince of Tyre? So the man, say unto the Prince of Tyre, Thus saith the Lord God, Because thine heart is lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a God. I sit in the seat of God, in the midst of the seas. Yet thou art a man, and not God. So we know that this was a man, and not God. He wasn't a spirit, he wasn't an angel, he was a man. Though thou set thy heart as the heart of God. Behold, this is now a bit of irony. Thou art wiser than Daniel. There is no secret that they could hide from thee. With thy wisdom and with thine understanding, thou hast gotten thee riches and hast gotten gold and silver into thy treasures. By thy great wisdom and by thy traffic, Hast thou increased thy riches, and thine heart is lifted up because of thy riches? Therefore, thus saith the Lord God, because thou hast set thine heart as the heart of God, behold, therefore, I will bring strangers upon thee, and the terrible of the nations, and they shall draw their swords against the beauty of thy wisdom, and they shall defile thy brightness, they shall bring thee down to the pit, 
and thou shalt die the deaths of them that are slain in the midst of the sea? Wilt thou yet say before him that slayeth thee, I am God, that thou shalt be a man and no God in the hand of him that slayeth thee? Thou shalt die the deaths of the uncircumcised by the hand of strangers, for I have spoken it, saith the Lord God. Now if you stop there, you'd say, well, that's a dreadful end for that blasphemous boasting king of Tyre. He's very much like the blasphemous boasting of the king of Babylon. And they were in the earth, and they turned out to be pictures and symbols of the great boaster and the great blasphemer. There was another one called Lucifer, son of the morning, who said, I will set my throne above the stars, I will be like the most high. And they caught his spirit, and they've been on the earth as warning symbols. Now it turns to another one in the same chapter. Son of man, take up the lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus saith the Lord God, Thou seedest up the sun. Or if you could ponder every one of these words, you build up a most magnificent creature. Thou seedest up the sun, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now who was in Eden, the garden of God, if we keep to the scriptures? Adam? Eve, Cain and Abel weren't there, they were outside. Only one other person was there, apart from the Lord himself. And that was the one who is called the serpent, the dragon, Satan, the devil. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Now look at this description. Every precious stone was thy covering. The book of the Revelation says that Babylon was dead with gold and silver and precious stones and pearls. But when you read this list of stones here, this the uh, sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, the carbuncle and gold, you think of two things. You think of the description of the heavenly Jerusalem, and you think of the breastplate that Aaron wore as the high priest. These are not given just for fancy. They're for us to consider and ponder. And then it says, The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes. That's a little bit unfortunate in the modern use of the word. It doesn't mean to say anything to do with the inside. It was the musical accompaniments of worship. Tablets and flutes or clarionets or pipes. In the day that thou wast created, we know now then this is a created being. But he's not called a man. The other one was called a man. Thou art a man. This is the day that thou wast created. Now then, here comes the extraordinary statement. Thou art the anointed cherub. The very self-same word is used of priest and prophet and king and our saviour. So here's the other anointed. And it says that you that, that, that covering and I have set so, you notice it? I have set these so. So here was some mighty being that was given a place of honour in connection with God's own presence. Almost like a high priest in connection with the Most High. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. 
Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. I don't know what that means exactly. This is something supernatural. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day that thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. So this being had some choice. wasn't automatic. And there was ambition. There was that, I will set my throne above the stars. I will be like the Most High. And he set the same trap for Adam and Eve. That's very often the case, isn't it? The thing that was a trap to him, he sets. He says, God doth know that if you'll only take this, you will be as gods. I will be like gods. You will be as gods. And when she saw it was not only good for food, but to make one wise, see, there it is. Not to make you evil. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no. Think of all the blessings that will come if only you know a little bit more. But, Micorva, you're right. You're right, Micorva. Don't stop at Genesis 3. Go through the book to the book of the Revelation and see where that grabbing at wisdom before the time and transgressing the prohibition of God has led the human race. All this is actually a usurpation of the place that Christ alone could occupy. And so we read, By the multitude of thy merchandise, they have filled the midst of thee with violence, and thou hast sinned. Therefore will I cast thee as profane. He was in the holy mountain. He did have a holy position. He was the anointed cherub that covered. And you see more or less the cherub covering the mercy seat and the ark in the symbol. Well, he had something of the same relationship. I will destroy thee, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. We've got no idea, have we? I mean, I think it serves the devil's purpose if we let Mephistopheles to be a picture of Satan with a horn and tails and a grinning, ugly face. Not so. It's not so. When, uh, when Michael, the archangel, and he's the, he's the archangel, when Michael, the archangel, contended with the devil about the body of Moses, he did not bring against the devil a raiding accusation, but he said very modestly, the Lord rebuked thee. That's Michael. And as I said earlier, Satan didn't have any diffidence in taking our Saviour to the pinnacle of the temple or to a high mountain and to tempt him with that which you think was impossible for him to yield. Never in all your life ridicule Satan or belittle him, for you're serving him. And the ones who serve him best are those whose doctrine has come to the conclusion that there is no such a person as a devil at all. And of course he can get on properly then, you see. And so we have here. Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness, you see? It's nothing to do with gross evil, what we call wicked things. But an overweening estimate of himself. And there may be some in this congregation, or some in those distant lands that will be listening, that have never committed what you might call gross sins. But they know full well how the domination of self in all its phases can begin to get perilously near to what this 
mighty person uh, reached. And it says, I will cast thee to the ground. I will lay thee before kings, that they may behold thee. Thou hast defiled thy sanctuaries by the multitude of thy iniquities, and by the iniquity of thy traffic. Now somebody may object and say, well, that shows it's not a mighty spirit being. But what do you mean by traffic? Even today we speak about the evil of trafficking in spiritual things. And it's a monstrous thing to read that in high spiritual offices there has been some behind the scenes. Oh, you think that's terrible, but that's what's happening here. Trafficking in evil things. I will bring forth a fire from the midst of thee. Well, I suppose God should bring that from the midst of anybody, but this is extraordinary, isn't it? This is one about whom it can be said without explanation. It shall devour thee, and I will bring thee to ashes upon the earth in the sight of them that behold thee. All they that know thee among the people shall be astonished at thee. Thou shalt be a terror. Never shalt thou be any more. This is further explained in the book of the Revelation that the devil was taken and cast into a lake of fire and there with the false prophet at the beast. Well, here we've had brought before us in this survey, best I can do in the time and with my ability, that the anointed is an appointed person set apart for some work specially to do with God. The three great offices are in the Old Testament the prophet, the priest and the king. And the anointing carries with it the ability to perform supernatural gifts. And so I come at last to 2 Thessalonians 2. And there you have this emissary of this anointed one sitting in the temple of God claiming worship and confirming his claim by signs and wonders and lying miracles. But the signs and the wonders are exactly the same words that he used of the true miracles, only the word lying is slipped in. And there are some of God's people who are already to be deceived. If you go to some of their meetings, they're having signs and wonders and miracles all the time. Any amount of people go into that meeting and walk out without their crutches perfectly healed. All this is going on, whether it's true or false, doesn't matter to us. But when that awful period comes, when the whole world is to be deceived, those who just swallow anything because they see a miracle and say that must be of God, here are the signs and the wonders and the lying miracles. And then the dreadful end, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved, they have a strong delusion and they believe the lie. Dreadful end, isn't it? And so you can pursue this matter, if you will, take it step by step, further through the book. But I think I've done as far as it's humanly possible in our time to sketch out, first of all, what the word anointed means. It means appointed to some position. The anointing is by the Holy Spirit that conveys spiritual power. The anointed Saviour is prophet, priest and king and he opened his ministry in Luke's Gospel saying, quoting from Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me for he hath anointed me to preach the Gospel. And then we have this other anointed one who by his own overweening weaning consideration of his beauty and his wisdom he felt 
I have no spurs to prick the sides of my intent, says one character, but only vaulting ambition, which all leaps itself and falls on the other side. How true that is over and over and over again. So we are enjoined not to have vaulting ambition, but with all lowliness and meekness to seek to walk worthy of our calling until the day comes when God shall exalt us and preserve us from ever toppling over like this awful being who by his own brightness and by his own beauty and by his own conceit thought about his own destruction and the destruction, alas, of so many who followed his evil way.